Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Hyatt Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. We also have a special guest with us today, the wonderful Christine Marmee Thompson. Welcome, Tina. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here with you. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Jay Johnson-Teal. Jay is an assistant professor of early childhood studies at the University of Alabama. Growing up as a woman from a Southern working class family, she is deeply committed to justice-oriented approaches to childhood studies. Her scholarship works against deficit discourses about young people and their families, theorizes place-based and arts-based practices for community research, and explores the playful and artistic engagements of young people growing up in the southeastern United States. Her research rethinks how scholars and communities might work together to develop practices and policies that expand our understandings of the constructions of childhood in the Deep South. Jay has published many articles and chapters in her field, including co-editing the book, Posthumanism and Literacy Education, Knowing, Being, Doing, Literacies. Jay received her PhD at the University of Georgia, before receiving her PhD, she was an educator, PK through grade five. And before that, she proudly worked in the service industry, including taking orders for bus parts, sweeping hair, and serving food at a local restaurant. Jay, welcome to Childhood Art. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and have a conversation with y'all today. Jay, I'm going to ask the first question. And first and foremost, I wonder if you would be willing to talk about your own childhood, specifically your ways of making with and making sense of the worlds that you were a part of. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I will say I grew up in a home. Um, my mom is a maker. She, um, she's always redone furniture. She sews. She's She's very inventive. I've seen her do um, make elaborate wedding cakes when I was really young, all these things. Um, I think she was part of that, like uh, the gig economy before it was called gig economy, you know? <laughs> and so I, I was surrounded with kind of just like inspiration for, for creating um, as a child. And I actually spent lots of times outdoors creating things. So um, some of my fondest memories are just build. I used to build little worlds with all the kind of uh, more, be more ephemeral art or found materials, right? That you find outside. But I would just spend like hours making elaborate things with flowers and, and sticks and trees and building these like little um many miniature worlds <laughs> with all the things I could find to play in. Um, that's one of the, my fondest memories of just making things. Right. And I still love to build things like that. It's, it's fun to me. Um, so miniatures kind of, and then, um, I also really, really enjoyed, um, playing a superhero, particularly Wonder Woman in the front yard. I did a lot of making and playing around, uh, becoming a Wonder Woman. Well, oddly with my my father's army hat, 
I don't know why that was the thing that made me Wonder Woman, but that was the thing that made me Wonder Woman, <laughs> which is not anything in her gear, right? But um, that, that, and just pretend worlds, a lot of pretend worlds that I would create things for, right? To make my worlds come to life in the ways that I wanted them to. So yeah, those, that's my, those are some of my fondest and earliest memories of making yeah, an art practice. That's wonderful. Um, so as a follow-up, how did these experiences come to shape your own views of art, play, and education? Yeah, I think, I think for me, one of the, the biggest takeaways when I draw on my own experiences is that children are always already engaged in, in artistic practice with everything they're doing. Um, and that we need to learn, be better at reading that <laughs> that way. I mean, I, 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 I often say children are in the practice of trying to make beautiful and whatever that means for them, right? Like whatever that, and beautiful is a tricky word because it, it gets value put to it. And so people come to that thinking, oh, well, um, that's not beautiful in my eye or that's not beauty in the way I see it. But I do think that they're in their making practices are really interested in how things work and how, trying to make the world, the worlds that they imagine in some way. And so um, as far as being a researcher in that, I, I try to stay keenly focused on um, ways that they're engaging in those practices that might, might in a more traditional art or making sense not look like art or making um, or might seem wasteful in some educational spaces, right? So for example, I had, um, when I was working in a community space with young children, um, one day a child was pouring the whole bottle of glue all over this construction paper. And, you know, at first you're, at, you're, you're it, you know, your body is like, oh no, all the glue, right? <laughs> But when, when I had the conversation, I, remembering my own experiences and knowing like, hey, there's something's happening here. So having the conversation with him, he was making a glue goo volcano and it makes sense. Like if your volcano is erupting, you need lots of glue, right? Uh, so those are the things I think that my own experiences have kind of helped me see things more broadly and with more depth. And um, just giving me the, the tools to be able to push back against that quote teacher voice that tells me we should be more conservative with materials or, you know, everything has to be neat or anything like that, that it's, that it is messy and it's okay to be messy. And it's okay for me not to even understand what it is they're wanting to create with that, that for them, it is what they need in that given moment. So um that's actually really freeing too, I think, when you let yourself be that instead of the other, because it, it's good to just always ask yourself, wait, is it, is this really harmful or is it just me, right? Like, am I, am I worried about this because I have a problem with it and it's just my issue <laughs> or is it because I'm, um, it actually really is harmful to someone. And most of the time it's just because of your own you know, things that you've learned over the years, which I would say some of that is we've learned as pedagogy <laughs> for sure. Um, and having to work against that. Yeah. 
Jay, just as a follow-up, so I think the glue, the glue example is, I think, a terrific example of, of what you said previously about children are always kind of engaged in these practices and the, the, the challenge is whether or not we notice it, but then also how we notice it, right? And so you kind of touched on something that I think is really important, which is the matter of how we come to notice young people's work and the extent to which we see it as work or the extent to which we see it as valuable work or as disruptive work or as meaningful work. And so I wonder if you could just talk about maybe your experience of coming to notice children engaging in this work and at the same time, maybe the evolution of how you've come to notice it and maybe learn to appreciate things that you didn't previously appreciate. Yeah. Sorry, that was a very long question. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it's a good question though. Um, yeah, I think, you know, for me, I, I've, I've always been someone who's just kind of set back to try to learn from young people. I don't think I've, I've, for the most part, I'm not seeing them as things, like these things that need to be filled up with my knowledge and expertise. And I think part of that is when you grow up working class, or, or at least this is my experience growing up working class, is that there's a lot of the world tells you never enough in a lot of ways. And so you kind of start embodying this idea that maybe you're never an expert in anything. And in the surface, that might sound really like a bad thing, right? But in fact, I think that's been an advantage for me with working with children because I come to the, the table like, hey, I, I don't I don't really know anything either. So how about you all just like teach me some stuff right now? Um, certainly in other spaces that can be difficult, right? To approach things. But with children, it I think it's offered me a way to humbly enter into their lives and realize that they have a lot to teach me. Um, and that I, I think has been really helpful. Um, and so by watching their work, um, I think early on as a teacher, their work was just, you know, it was, it wasn't necessarily connected to issues of justice and equity in the ways I look at it now. Um, and, I, and it was just things that they do. Um, but now I've, I've got like, having gone to grad school and got a PhD, I have like these other tools that I maybe didn't have words for before. And so I recognize some of those things as teaching me about um, how children are making sense of their social, cultural, political world, right? And, um, and or showing me practices that work against all the kind of things that I, I would like, the conditions I'd like to change, <laughs> right? Like, for example, I know, you know, a lot of my work is about neoliberalism and how capitalism has kind of just usurped educational spaces, but when I watch young children who maybe haven't been in school yet and, and their art practices, a lot of the things that they're doing work against some of those like mass production and um, they like the, the need to like produce rather than just be in process, right? Um, they, uh, there's not an efficiency there. That's not what they're worried about at all. And so I think there's a lot to be learned about by their art and making that can help us kind of rethink the ways in which we enter, um, 
what I call the neoliberal child and trying to push against what that looks like um, in our more formal educational spaces, right? Um, and that to me has been really helpful to be able to, to put those two things together and kind of see some of the things that they're doing is pushing up against or telling more stories about who they are and um, why, why their experiences matter. I think I most of the time we're talking about children in general, right? Um, they're already seeing, they're often, at, childhood is marginalized as they're, they're not enough yet. We have to think about them as, they often get seen as future bodies, right? Like let's use future oriented discourses. Like you gotta be ready for this next grade or you gotta be this. Um, you gotta be an economic subject in the world at some point, right? Um, and those discourses are always, I think, producing children as, quote, not good enough yet in a lot of ways. So I think being able to kind of notice the ways they work within and against those things or under the radar, so to speak. A friend of mine, Karen Woolen, talks about like children working under the radar of our quote rules and, and things has been really helpful for me uh, it, to notice in their art practice because that's where they do it the most, right? That's where they're pushing against the world and 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 using their 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 power and 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 becoming you know agentic in some way with with the world that is really interesting in their world making practices for me. Thanks, Jay. I wonder, uh, just as a real quick follow-up, um, mm -hmm. one of the things that you've been touching on is kind of, I, I mean, obviously the importance of world-making mm -hmm. in children's lives, but then also um, I think the, and, and this maybe gets overlooked sometimes just in general when people encounter children's art, but the the art and the practice itself as a, as a, a kind of authorial power you know, where young people are are kind of exercising not just their voice, but uh, their way of living and thinking the world. And art provides that kind of site to do that work. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think they're making, you know, I, to me, they're, they're not only are they making sense of the world when they do these kinds of things, but they're also like producing the world, right? Um they, they have such wonderful, interesting theories about how things work. And I think really are making theory about what is possible, to be honest. Um, things that I don't, I don't, I don't think of as an adult anymore. <laughs> you know, there's somewhere, somewhere along the line as adults, we lose something. I don't know what it is, but we, we, we become very boring, I think. <laughs> And uh, they just see things in a very different way. Um, and so I believe that in a world that often, I mean, we know the old adage, right? Children are to be seen and not heard. And like, and even though that's an old saying, and that's not something I think anybody in, that's here right now believes, <laughs> but it is very much something that still like is a thread that runs through like spaces where children and you know co-inhabit right and so I think art and making whether that's something that is allowed in the space or they're like bending the rules and finding ways to make I mean I think about little things like even when I was working in schools we make those little 
football things where they would flick them at each other and, you know, those sorts of things, which are still making practices and, um, and not necessarily our, our spitballs, right? <laughs> like out of paper, those kinds of things. Um, I think all of those things are a way for them to express themselves without being heard, right? I like heard in the ways of like, like verbally heard or having to speak about them to express themselves in, in a way that's, um, hey, I don't like, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit in, I'm going to push against this rule a little bit, or I'm going to push my boundaries. I'm going to see how far I can make something. And I do think young people are much better equipped at like pushing those boundaries, I think, because as we get older, we get more fearful of pushing the boundaries and what the consequences might be for us. And I think young people often are not as fearful of that boundary, pushing at it and seeing where it'll go. Yeah, so it's fun to watch. I actually often love like watching children in spaces where they are, their manipulator touching the thing that's the off limit space, because that to me is way more interesting to kind of see how they're pushing their limits a little bit. It's fun. <laughs> exactly. I have a great picture for you. <laughs> send you one. Yeah. Um, you know, in your talk a few weeks ago, you were, and this is very much related, but you were talking about Mateo and your presence in his artful play. And you were there not as a teacher, not as a coach, not as an evaluator. Um, you were just there. And you talked about the fact that it was somehow important to him. Um, and we've talked a lot about lingering, the importance of lingering in research and the importance of interested adults that Chris writes about a lot, witnesses, guests, audiences, you know, and, and um, that role that is not teacher, not parent. Um, and could you talk a little bit about what that does for children and in your observations and also how do we how do we urge people in teacher education to develop an understanding of the importance of that role and the capacity to perform that role in a classroom with children yeah and you're and you're right it's not parent it's not teacher it's not friend either though right they don't see us as like the same as their peer we're still an adult <laughs> um and often like roles in play that they give me are more adult roles. Like you sit over here and be in charge of headquarters while we go save the world kind of stuff, right? They're not interested in me becoming a superhero and working with them that way. Um, I'm behind the scenes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things that I think is so embodied that I, I often wonder how do we teach this practice, right? I feel like it's... Um, I'll, I'll tell a little story. Uh, when I was um, younger in schools, so uh, early on in school, they realized really quickly I'm ambidextrous. And so I favor my left hand, but I, I, there are some things I cannot do at all with my left. I, I have to use my right. And cutting is one of those. Um, and so if you, when you're ambidextrous, typically one of your, the, 
one of the hands is is more fine-tuned than the other still even though you have to use both for different things and so my right hand doesn't even though that's the only hand I can cut with I can't even try to cut with my left hand it doesn't work um uh the uh right hand doesn't have as much fine skill with it you know like really fine-tuned skills or I guess people would call it fine motor I don't love those terms because that tends to lead into developmentalism, which is a whole nother thing. Um, but uh, move forward to like fifth grade. And I had a teacher who wanted, you know, I would often get finished with work sooner. So she would like give me things to do um, for her <laughs> rather than give me like, extra work. She would give me things to do. So she asked me to cut out these flowers for her bulletin board. And I, I did them and I brought them to her and I was so proud of them because I'd worked so hard. And she looked at them and went, Ugh, remind me to never let you cut anything for me again because you don't cut very straight. And it like, like I am, I am 50 years old and that still sticks with me today, right? And I, so I, I promise I have a point with the thing when I get to that, but like, that kind of power dynamic, I told myself when I decided, like, I'm, well, I don't know that I ever even decided. I just kind of landed in education somehow. I don't even know how that ended up. It just did at one time, at some point. And um, that I would never be that person with young people, right? I would, I would work really hard to never do that thing, whatever that was. Um, and so I, um, think that because of the way I that I embodied that kind of feeling of of embarrassment and just in the, in that moment about my work um it kind of helps me be better with young people and sitting with them and kind of seeing my us as like you know you're teach you're you're teaching me so um all that to say is I think what we have to train ourselves to do in those moments that helps us be the like colleague kind of, it's not even colleague. I'm not, you know, I don't have a word for it. Maybe we should make one up. That's, <laughs> but um, to, to do that is to really know that I can learn from this person, regardless of their age, right? This person's, this, this human that's sitting beside me that's interacting with all these materials is something to teach me. And I think I'm a big believer that we feel the energy from other people and we can feel when people are not interested in us or are, or really like appreciate what we're doing. And so I just feel like with whatever reason, Mateo was in tune to that and knew, could feel that energy from me and therefore invited me to be a part of that. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I know how to teach it, to be honest, to other people, right? Um, is it's, it's something you have to feel, or at least I think it's something you have to feel. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. My, that's just my experience with it. But yeah. I think, you know, I don't know. Do y'all have, y'all might have better, better words for it. I don't know. <laughs> I just think sometimes there are things, this is, and as artists, you know, like some things are just aren't words for, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know how high on and, and Tina feel, but 
this is one of those things that we we often talk about with with teachers but then also like with with grad students who are doing research with children and it's really difficult to like effectively capture what we're talking about but uh and I, again i don't know if it's you know maybe if it's something a sensibility that you have or that maybe you don't i don't know but like there's a way of being there that young people are very savvy at detecting and also noticing uh how genuine it really is yeah you know and the extent to which it holds space for them to matter and to be of importance and i you know and students have always asked about that and i i never quite fully know what to say yeah i don't i i don't either i think it's one of those things that i i was working with some students this week on something and um but in conferences and paul who is my partner he was in the next room and i was after i finished i was like oh i'm so tired and i don't know you know you always feel kind of defeated after you've just like been doing this kind of work and he was like do you realize like for like three hours you just thought on the fly and like gave them like really good ideas (laughs) I was like well I mean that's my job that's what I'm trying to teach them how to do (laughs) so I he was like I don't know that everybody knows how to do that like I think that's something you just kind of can do right so I, I so bad with you I'm like I don't know that everybody like I want to say that you could learn this skill, but I don't know, right? Like it's it's one of those things that maybe some of us are gifted with in some way. But I also don't I don't like that whole idea of like, especially around art practice, that you're like the prodigy or whatever. Like, because what happens then is someone who maybe doesn't like come out of the womb being somebody who draws without any kind of, you know, I have a, I have a nephew who he he was drawing at three, like full formed people. Right. So like he has a natural proclivity for, for seeing the world that way and being able to draw it. But I think when we only see that person as the artist then we miss so much. Right. So I don't know. I don't, I, I get caught up in, in multiple ways of, of, of understanding the world and I don't really know how to how to navigate it sometimes when it comes to like the actual pedagogy of teaching things that are that that I feel in my body versus I put words on a page about um, like that or being able to think on the fly with young people and you know those are and I'm not saying I always think on the fly in the best ways either but it's um, yeah those are just tricky tricky teaching spots for us. I think. So I had I had another question, but I don't I I think I want to ask a different question now. Okay. <laughs> um, and it has to do it has to do with with teaching, and it has to do with that you know those ways of being with young people, right? Um, and I think it my question is ultimately about the relationship between teaching and research, or the extent to which teaching is research. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. And 
Um, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, my, it's, it's not a fully formed question, but I wonder if you could talk just maybe broadly about that relationship and, and maybe the way that, uh, and maybe the way in terms of talking with, with teachers about, about how research is important to teaching, that's an entry point into this conversation, but I'll leave that to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are, I really see teaching and research as a reciprocal relationship in general. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I was meeting with students because I have them doing a four week kind of mini research project and then like action participant observation kind of thing. And, um, and I tell them straight up, the reason why I'm doing this is because you are a researcher and, um, you are an intellectual and a lot of people will tell you otherwise, especially the discourse you see in media and those things. And that um, we have to start, you have to start seeing yourself as not just a babysitter, not just, you know, all the other discourses that get said about teachers and teaching, but that you are an intellectual and you have to see yourself as a teacher researcher because you are number one. And number two, if you start using that language, you'll start seeing yourself more as that. And the world will start seeing yourself as that. So I'm really trying to kind of get them to see that all day long that they are, they are curating data uh, about young people and whatever that looks like. And having worked in spaces with young children, I mean, I, there's lots of ways that that unfolds. Um, and I'm a big believer in, in Betty St. Pierre's like it, dream data and all the other kinds of ways that we end up like making sense of what's going on in our spaces, right? Um, but yeah, I, I think when they, when, it's fun to see that click because I think when that clicks for them that they are researcher, then there's a different way that they're with young people in the, like the ways they report even about the way they're being with young people. Because so I think it's really easy. It's really, really easy, especially with the students that I work with, because they work in birth to five spaces for the most part. They don't get paid living wages. They don't, you know, like it's, it's difficult, but they're, um, they're also required, many of them required to have a degree to do the job, or at least to get a little bit of a pay raise. And um, I, they are often just written off as babysitters. They're just someone to watch my kid while I'm at work. And um, I just really, that's one of the things I'm hopeful that it might at least trickle in and, and affect that space a little bit, even if it's a few places um, where teachers start seeing themselves as uh, as the researcher and intellectual that they are and not let that discourse define who they get to be. Um, yeah. It's fun to watch unfold when they see that about themselves, right? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful advice, Jay. I love the idea of like the teacher being a researcher at the same time. But um, as art educators, we sometimes have another layer of being in the art classroom where students get to be um, pulled out of the art classroom. 
for other subject matters or other um, school events, how might you navigate that sort of um, situation in schools or how might you talk with uh, peace service educators about that? Yeah. So this is tricky, right? Because like my instinct is always to, I, I don't think I've ever done anything like by the book or I'm kind of a rebel at birth sort of person, I think. <laughs> so I'm always the one that's like going to speak up or do the thing, but that's not everybody. And, and not everybody has that luxury, I think, either of feeling like they can do that. Um, I do think it's important to like, say the thing that you, uh, you know, that art is important too, and that this might be the only time some children feel safe and like that they're in their space that, that makes them feel like school is worthwhile for them. Right. Um, so that's really important to, to remember. Um, one of the ways I, I've tried to teach that with, with teachers is, by giving like visual verbal journals as part of their experience and saying like, like some of them struggle with that. And then there's others that say, this is the first time in, in all of my university life where I felt like I actually thrived at something, right? So to use that to like help you make decisions about like, are you really gonna pull somebody out of the thing where they might feel the most, um, I don't want to use thriving, but you know, like they feel that intense um, energy and and warmth of of what they're engaged in, right? Um, I the whole process of pulling people out to have more reading or more this or more that. First off, we forgot we made up all those rules and we could change them all, right? We could change every one of those like quote milestones and, and those standards and all the stuff that we made up. Also, I think we have to get better at teaching all teachers that all this, not only are they made up, but they're made up for very particular reasons. And those reasons are often to make some people very rich um, off the labor of teachers and young children, right? So I think that's really important because once they understand that, then maybe it seems a little less important to pull someone out for something extra, right? Like an extra reading or an extra whatever. Um, I also, you know, I've seen the opposite where if a child is not, quote, behaviorally doing the thing I want them to do in the art room, uh, a teacher saying, well, I'll just send them back to their teacher instead of, of dealing with whatever's going on and making it a space for everybody. So um, I, yeah, it's tricky because I, again, um, I think specials in general, because art falls under this quote specials, right? <laughs> Which is also just really interesting to me that we call them specials. Um, that those things kind of get pushed to the wayside. But in my personal opinion, especially right now, those are some of the most important ways that we can change the world um, because art is not just like making a, you know, a painting, like, you know, like we have a Kara Walker exhibit in Athens right now that I've recently got to see, right? And like that, that that's world changing in itself. But then like, video movies and and those kinds of things are ways the ways in which we see 
people's being different than us. And the way we start understanding, um, hey, wait, my my bubble is different than someone else's bubble. And I I think in schools in general right now, we're seeing a push to not talk about any of those things. And uh, we're not going to talk about racism. We're not going to talk about gender issues. We're not going to talk about what it looks like to to be transgender or be even transgender affirming in our spaces, right? Though I think we have to think bigger than schools then, right? So art art is a way in which those things can still be played out and experimented with um, and also gives us a space to enter in conversations about those things in a way that might feel safer than just the sitting around answering the questions out of the history book sort of deal, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, th I just think we have to just continue trying to convince people that, hey, wait a minute, art's important. Um, and let me tell you all the reasons why. It really, it's just making a case for yourself in a lot of ways and being an advocate. Um, but I also, in the other sense of that, right? I don't know. I think we put a lot on teachers to do all the work too. <laughs> and like, oh, you're gonna you gotta change the world, and and not that teaching can't change the world. I do think it can in lots of ways, but also there, it's not the only space children go into. I guess is what I'm trying to say about that. And so, um, finding ways to share those responsibilities, I think is helpful um, as well. I don't know if that answered your question completely, but um, I don't, you know, I, oh, I will say this. I will say this one more thing about like, what I do also tell my, my student teachers all the time when they go into spaces, um, find out who in your district or school or whoever gets to do whatever they wanna do and make friends with that person because that person has some kind of pull somewhere that can rub off on you and will allow you to get away with some things that maybe you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So who we know and who we're connected with always tends to matter for some reason in this world, so. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Uh, Payan's question and then your response has me is reminding me of uh, sort of a thread of your work, uh, especially in your recent presentation to, with the center, but, and that is kind of like uh, the critical work you're doing about the presence of like economic logics and rationales and how they shape children's lives. And so I have a question and it's gonna, I've written it out, it's gonna take me a while because there's a lot within it. So bear with me, okay? Yeah. So child labor has become, a rather prominent point of discussion as of late, and in some cases has led to legislative action. For example, the, the legislature of the state of Iowa recently put forward a bill that aims to rewrite Iowa's current child labor law to allow Iowa teens to work in previously prohibited jobs so long as they're part of an approved training program. Additionally, uh, a New York Times article recently published detailed the exploitation of migrant children who continue to work in some of the most dangerous employment settings in the United States, for example, in factories, slaughterhouses, and in construction. 
given the focus of especially your more recent paper, um, specifically the economic rationales used to structure and justify the systems in which children live and participate, is this something you have been following? If so, why might some of these issues be pertinent to think about, especially for those of us who are committed to equitable and humane rights for children? Yeah, it's it's big, right? Like this hyper-capitalist thing has really just put its hooks into everything. Um, this particular issue with Iowa is really interesting because the... I think on the surface, people are like, oh yeah, we need workers. So yeah, let them do it, let them do it. But they're not thinking about this bigger issue, which is the reason why you need workers <laughs> is because you're not willing to pay the people what they need and provide them with care in any way or safe conditions or all the things. And you're still not gonna be wanna do those things for the young people who are working there either, which is even scarier in a lot of ways because you know, um, not that I don't see children as, as equals in some way, but also, I mean, they're smaller. They're, they are smaller physically there. You know, there's a lot of, they're often being made to do these things for reasons other than, you know, like, oh, well, you can just take this little work class and go work in this space to, um, instead of going to sixth period at high school or whatever, right? Um, and so really, I feel like these things are more about like those bigger political issues of we don't want to pay living wages in this country. We don't. And we don't want to like, on this turn of that, we don't want to pay what somebody's worth for whatever it is they're doing um, or, or whatever service they're giving, right? Because we've gotten so accustomed to the dollar hamburger or whatever, right? Which is means somebody somewhere is not getting paid when you map out how many people are involved in making a hamburger, right? <laughs> With trucks and wheat and beef and all that stuff. So um, I've, I've been really interested in how that's unfolded, like this kind of discourse. So uh, Doreen Massey wrote a, you know, a while back about, how neoliberalism or hypercapitalism has taken over, hijacked our vocabulary and a lot of the words. And, and then Singh talks about progress too, having kind of been a part of that and how progress no longer makes sense because progress is about making others wealth in some way. And that just doesn't seem to sit well anymore with her and um, or with me either, actually. Um, and so when we think about these things and, and how they start out very young and documents from um, as far back as a, um, that I could find uh, Obama administration. We had an administration for a while that made no documents at all. <laughs> and so this is kind of a building period, but it's very similar to that. And, and um, so you've seen things in schools very young, like career and college ready four-year-olds that's like a, a standard for four-year-olds career and college ready which is mind-blowing to me um things that are posted about how every dollar spent this is at national and at state levels every dollar spent now in early care equals 
like $2 and economic growth later down the line. Um, and it's really written as if we have early care, more people can work for us. And that means those children have access to education so they can become part of the workforce earlier too. Um, so those kinds of things are very much present in the space, especially when schools are being checked off on are you meeting career and college ready goals from pre-K up um, in the United States. And uh, I like even just testing practices to me are a child labor practice because it's a new child labor practice, but some testing companies get a lot of wealth from people buying those tests and children really don't get anything except a lot of stress and maybe passed on to the next level. And it is their work, right? It's their intellectual property that is making someone else very wealthy. So um, I, I, I think if you're in a space where people are telling you your worth is, is what you can produce economically for someone, then that's what you start believing. That's what my worth is in the world. Like, and that's why I think we see people even, you know, constantly worried. My, my own niece, like said, I don't know if I can take this anymore. Everybody's always telling me I got to like be bigger, better, stronger, basically was her, what she was saying. She's like, and I'm tired. It's so much anxiety and stress. So yeah, um, I've, I think these things are definitely affecting and, and that's one of the reasons why I've been following it um, because I, I really do believe it. I think it could go a couple of ways. One is we could totally disrupt the system and change it so it's not that. The more likely way, the thing that I'm most worried about it is it going to disrupt the system and change education system in a way that's like disrupts it in a way that makes it um, a way we can't turn back from, I guess is what I'm going to say, right? Like worried about how far we're pushing the limits of like what what kinds of economic, what, how we're making subjects economic studies, commodities, bodies, commodities. And that to me is very problematic. Um, it's also why I think teachers are leaving in droves and don't want to come to programs. I don't know if y'all's program is down in numbers, but most people I know numbers are down because people are like, I don't want to teach. <laughs> There's all, you know, after everything, after COVID and all that stuff, they're like, nope, I can, I can be, appreciated at least somewhere else in another field. Um, and, so, and that all has to do with the ways in which we've built an economic system that really just doesn't function for anybody but rich people. So, yeah. Wow. Um, Jay, how do you see the relationship between these economic rationales uh, to existing discourses like development. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think definitely. I think part of that is, is that, you know, we have that great split of, of, you know, the development route, or we could have taken this other thing and everybody went development. Um, and I like, there are those of us who aren't, but I'm saying like, that's the thing that guides schooling in a lot of ways. Um, because of that thing, 
I don't know that people can are they don't have they don't have the tools for one because no one's actually ever shown them something other than development. So when they see development as that's what we have to be worried about, then of course, when you're looking at those de quote developmental milestones, are they meeting this? Are they meeting that? Then it becomes about pathologizing children in those spaces rather than actually, um, hey, what kind of brilliant things are they doing? What kind of theories are they making about the world? How, you know, I, they're capable and competent and I really want to learn from them. And then like, I'm not, I think that relationships are reciprocal. I do think the teacher is important in the space. And there is definitely some expertise and knowledge and experience that the adult has that they can offer, right? But I think that's just like, if you and I are talking about things, we have things to offer each other to help us see different viewpoints. Um, and so those developmental discourses get wrapped up also in economic growth then. So wait, this child hasn't met this standard yet. And so that means that a alum, they're not career and college ready. They're not going to be able to be a be out in the workforce someday because they haven't met this developmental milestone. And that means they need to be pulled out of art class now <laughs> because we got to make sure they meet that developmental milestone that actually probably could have been quote met just by doing art. But you know that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but. Yeah, so I think they're very much informing each other and how um, becoming more pathologized, more about like future-oriented discourses, more about commodities, um, instead of just like, this is an awesome place that children, I get to be with children all day and learn about their lives and the things that they, the, the ways in which they make worlds and that they're always already connected to, right? Like this idea that children are not connected to the political, cultural, whatever, like they are a part of that system. So like we we have something to learn from them about how to be in that system in ways that are different. <laughs> so, yeah. 100%, Jay, thank you. Yeah. All right, Jay, this was a beautiful way to kind of wrap up our conversation today all together. Uh, but we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for your generously sharing about your life and work. So as always, it was a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and just chat and share my thinking with you. It's a fun space to do so. I really appreciate it. Next time on Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, Assistant Professor of Chicana and Chicana Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Until then, please visit our webpage for updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.